Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I'm Jamie Moss. Today is the first episode of our second season, History's Lessons. This season, we will be exploring topics that our students said they wanted to know more about after taking our classes. Our first episode explores the importance of youth in the United States civil rights movement. To learn more about how young people shape the struggle for civil rights in the mid-20th century, I spoke with Dr. Misty Harper. Dr. Harper is an assistant professor of African-American history at UNCP. You may recall Dr. Harper's spooky Candyman episode from last season, and if you haven't given that a listen, I encourage you to check it out. That Coke makes everything better. It does. And it's different than Pepsi. They're not the same. Oh my gosh, it is. I mean, I, you're talking to a Georgia girl. I mean, yes. I'm going to I'm gonna be on the Coke train all day long um, and disparage Pepsi. So. <laughs> I, I will drink Diet Pepsi whenever it's my only option. But yeah, no, it's, 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 this is <laughs> Coke. It is, it's Coke. And, um, you know, when it's really hot, Really hot southern summers. There's really nothing like an ice cold Coca-Cola. And if you can get it out of a glass bottle, I don't know why that makes a difference, but it makes a difference. It does. It does. You don't have that funky aluminum twang on the end of it. It just tastes fresh. And it may be like the the taste of nostalgia, too. It's wrapped up in it that makes it better. I don't I know. I can see that. I can absolutely see that. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. We are not um, here, unfortunately, to talk about Coca-Cola. Maybe, <laughs> it, maybe at some point we can, because I do think it's absolutely worthy of a terrific history podcast, <laughs> the, the fantastic elixir of Coca-Cola. Um, but today we are going to talk about the civil rights movement. And I know... Um, that when you teach the civil rights movement at UNCP, both as kind of smaller units, but then in the larger class that you do here, just focus on the movement, you really highlight youth activism. So that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. And I think, you know, maybe a great place to start is with the visibility, the, the youngest visible participant in the civil rights movement. And that's Linda Brown, right? Yes. Yes, it is. So whenever the civil rights movement begins in its modern era in earnest, she's the face of it. And that is on purpose. So the NAACP, whenever they decided to use public education to dismantle systemic discrimination, they actually had several public education discrimination lawsuits sitting in front of them. They came from all over the country, South Carolina and Delaware and D.C. and Virginia. But it's this particular child in Topeka, Kansas, who becomes the title of this landmark case and who does become, for a short time, probably the most well-known child in the United States, possibly even globally, for a little bit in 1954 and 1955. Um, Linda Brown had a lot of qualities about her that 
other defendants didn't necessarily enjoy. She is from a middle-class family in Topeka, Kansas. Her family is unimpeachably respectable, and that matters tremendously to the NAACP. So her father is this reverend. He's a medical doctor. He's a pillar of Black Topeka. Her mom is a homemaker. She doesn't have to labor outside, and especially not in the employee of white people. She gets to care for her two daughters. And those two daughters are also unimpeachable themselves. They are well-mannered, sweet, dutiful, good students who go to Sunday school. And Linda is an eight-year-old third grader whenever she becomes internationally famous. And when you look at pictures of her, what the NAACP does a beautiful job in this case is centering her child essence, essentially. This is a cherubic-faced kid. There is nothing about her whatsoever that does not scream childhood innocence and vulnerability and the need to be protected and pedestaled. And so you have this premier civil rights organization that's dedicated to legislative justice, to use that to dismantle everything else that makes this calculated choice to put youth and not just any stage of youth, but this particular season of childhood as their trump card really and truly. And that is ultimately what does sway the Supreme Court unanimously to overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. It's not just the brilliance of Thurgood Marshall's oratory. It's not just that they bring in child psychologists and sociologists to argue that separation, regardless of whether or not segregation had ever actually been equitable in practice, which we know it's not, the fact of separation inherently informs children that there is something, quote unquote, wrong with a particular group. So it's all of these qualities combining together, plus the fact that Linda's an eight-year-old adorable kid. You can't look at this little girl. And her girlhood matters tremendously also because the NAACP is banking on the fact that girlhood will be less intimidating to your average American and especially to your average empowered white adult man than maleness, than boyness, than boyhood. So all of these qualities together from the start in the early 50s, make youth a centerpiece of this movement. So you can then draw the line to why Emmett Till, who comes in the summer of 1955 and becomes an internationally famous kid, why he is at the opposite end of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. He is a different season of childhood. He's a teenager. He is a 14-year-old boy from Chicago. That means something very threatening to rural white people in the Mississippi Delta. That means something different to white America generally. A 14-year-old boy is on the cusp of manhood. They are already experiencing puberty. They are losing their innocence to some degree, whether or not they, they already have other adult experiences in their life. They, they are on the road to those experiences. And so that's fundamentally different than a grade school kid. It doesn't matter that Emmett Till was still also a child. 
the fact that he's a young teenage boy allegedly feeling his oats by making an overture to a young white woman who was only 21 when he allegedly wolf whistled at her in Mississippi. So there's only a seven year age difference there. You may want to just take a minute and just give a little bit of background about Emmett Till, just in case some of those that are listening may not be aware of who he is and what happened to him. Certainly. So what happens is Brown versus Brown versus the Board of Education overturns Plessy versus Ferguson in May of 1954. In August of 1955, Emmett Till, who was a 14-year-old ninth grader who lived in Chicago, went to visit his cousins in Money, Mississippi. His family um, had migrated, or part of his family rather, had migrated to Chicago years earlier, and they kept up close contact with the Mississippi um, family. And he had gone down there several summers in, in his childhood to visit with his uncle and his cousins and what have you. But at the end of the day, he spent nine, 10 months out of the year living in the south side of Chicago with his mother in this wonderfully insulated black bubble. The south side of Chicago was and is black Chicago. This was a space where he was surrounded not only with people who looked like him, but people who looked like him in positions of authority, who cared for him. They were the teachers and the preachers and the professionals and and the service workers all around him. So he didn't grow up with the sort of anxiety that his country cousins in Sunflower County, Mississippi, were growing up with, living in the beating heart of the Jim Crow South. So you've got this kid, and I want to stress again, this is another child. Mm-hmm. He's just in this different stage of childhood. Mm-hmm. This this young man who is coming into this situation where he really doesn't understand the gravity of what it means if he gets mouthy with a white adult, if he does anything that even might seem untoward to a white person, let alone to a white woman and a young white woman, which is who Carolyn Bryant was whenever she was managing Bryant's grocery store and meat market there in Money, Mississippi, where all of these people were colliding. And so she's this 21-year-old, quite quite pretty. She's sometimes remembered as the backwoods Marilyn Monroe of Mississippi. And whenever you... <laughs> and so I didn't make that up. I found... I, yeah. I know. I'm sorry. It's the audio medium. I made a face and Miss Dr. Harper's laughing at my face. <laughs> I found that quote relatively recently. I I knew that she had been considered, you know, kind of this local beauty, which, you know, fine, whatever. But I saw recently, and I forget who it was who assigned that to her. And I was like, huh, backwoods, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, okay. It's it's pretty hyperbole. No doubt. But yeah, so she's this 21-year-old white woman considered quite comely. And this 14-year-old who's pubescent on the cusp of becoming a young man allegedly wolf whistles at her. That supposed action was enough 
for two adult white men to take this child and brutally, brutally murder him. So you've got right at the top of the modern civil rights movement, the bookend of what childhood is. On the one end, you've got middle class, eminently respectable, female, and single digit Linda Brown. On the other end of this spectrum, you've got a 14-year-old boy on the cusp of manhood who's accused of a kind of sexual impropriety. And at the heart of it, what matters is how do you define who is a kid, who will get the attention centered on their childhood and on, you know, the, the dignity of their childhood and what they ought to be able to expect as young citizens of the United States. The only reason that Emmett Till, at, le at least as far as I'm concerned, um, the only reason that Emmett Till becomes an international martyr is because his mother makes him so. His mother does not simply accept that her son was kidnapped and then never surfaced again, which is likely what a lot of Black parents in Mississippi would have accepted. They would have mourned. They would have been incensed. But to go to any kind of authority meant to go to white authority. And it meant to potentially court even more harm to your family, to other loved ones. His mother, Mamie Till Bradley, who had been living in Chicago long enough, she was absolutely determined not only that the state of Mississippi would find her son, but whenever they did find him and he had been lynched and his body was so horrifically decomposed, she made it an international spectacle. That's why we know who he is. In the middle of these two children is another child, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin, down in Montgomery, Alabama, who has been given this designation that I don't like at all. She's called the first Rosa Parks. Mm. Rosa Parks ought to be called the second Claudette Colvin. <laughs> <laughs> and that is no that is no disrespect to Ms. Parks, but she gets to be this symbol of the Montgomery bus boycott for, again, reasons of propriety and dignity and assumptions about what people will best respond to. When Claudette Colvin refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery City bus in March of 1955, so this is six months before Emmett Till is murdered, she is a 15-year-old high school girl who already has a history of flouting and resisting Jim Crow custom in that city. She had already become quite adept at getting lighter-skinned friends who could pass for white and who were about her same size to go into stores to try on clothes because Black people were not allowed to try on clothes in white establishments. They would try on clothes. She would be waiting outside for the friend to come out and say whether or not something had fit. And then Claudette would go in and buy whatever it was. And so a lot of shop owners had already gotten wise to the fact that there was this teenage girl who was subverting all of these rules. So she's got this rebellious reputation already inside the city. And when she refuses to give up her seat, she's refusing to give it up to a white 
woman. So the beacon of propriety and privilege and status and all these things. And it turns into a very physical scuffle. She's not getting off the bus. A cop has to be brought in. The cop is the one who drags her off the bus. And the entire time she is fighting like a little wildcat and screaming to the top of her lungs, it's my constitutional right. It's It absolutely is. And it's also, you can certainly... You can certainly see where elders would be like, that is one unruly kid. She becomes this unruly kind of girl. So she's not, I mean, she she is already on the way to how Emmett Till is just such an anthema to Black respectability, certainly to white propriety as it existed for most white racists, right? All of this stuff. So you've got this going trajectory where you move from acceptability, even respectability, to Claudette, to Till, and at the same time, it's youth every step of the way. And the adults who are absolutely the primary organizers, they have been the primary organizers through every arm of this, stretching all the way back to the 17th century, they are desperate to both Harness youth when it suits them, but also hold youth at a distance because of the unpredictable nature of what it means to bring kids into this fight. Now, they absolutely do. When the Montgomery bus boycott begins in earnest in December with Mrs. Parks, who is also an NAACP activist and field organizer, and she's a trained resistor. She's not just some little old lady who was tired, like has been right. I know, and that's the, that was the story <laughs> for such a long time. Yes. Just one day, Rosa Parks sat down and said, I'm not taking it anymore. Right. I mean, you know, that's that that's a great human spirit story, but that's yeah. It, it, it's not the full scope at all, right? This is very again calculated by the adults and necessarily so. And when Dr. King is invited to be the face of this movement, because Rosa Parks can't be, because she's a woman. She's a woman. Mm-hmm. So they bring in this again, middle class, impeccably educated and charismatic and and Mm -hmm. brilliant orator in Dr. King, he becomes the face and a chief organizer of the civil rights movement. And throughout his life, while college students, while high school and junior high and even elementary students were a part of nonviolent protests, a part of marches and all kinds of demonstrations that had been organized by local groups such as the Montgomery Improvement Association and then broader national groups like the Southern Christian Leadership Association. Youth was very controlled. Young folks were controlled because when young folks organized on their own or whatever, they got a little unruly. They did not always adhere to nonviolent confrontational tactics. I was explaining to my students toward the end of this particular semester, there's a difference between nonviolent confrontation and direct confrontation. Direct confrontation doesn't necessarily mean violent. 
that's not it. But you take something like the Montgomery bus boycott that was centered in a boycott, right? It is at the surface level, a kind of passive form of resistance. You're simply going to withhold your money from this racist institution, right? Okay, great. That certainly brought the city of Montgomery to its knees. It was quite effective. It was not direct confrontation. Direct confrontation is the Greensboro Four going to Woolsworth, going into a shop where they are specifically not allowed to sit at a lunch counter and be served. You can go out on the floor, might not be able to try any clothes on, but you can go out on that floor, but you will not come over here and you will not eat lunch. You won't be served. And sitting down peacefully, but putting your physical presence in a space, that is direct confrontation. That is risky behavior in the minds of most activists, adults. And it's something that by and large, only kids, this time college and university students, were doing. So you see that the modern civil rights movement is very interested in harnessing youth when it suits them. But on their terms, they certainly want to be able to control who the youth is. And then there are these instances where they can't control it, such as Claudette Colvin. You have these outlier instances, such as Emmett Till, that highlight just the unpredictability of what it means to be a, a teenager. You know, this, this person who is going through all of these different changes and they're still a kid, but they are beginning to move beyond the way that they can be manipulated, like in the case of Linda Brown, so that if you don't have them minding a, a very regimented kind of activism left to their own devices, or if they go rogue, then all of a sudden you've got a six-month nationwide protest of a Woolsworth where you've got college and university students descending and increasingly are changing the tone and tenor of what the mainstream civil rights movement even looks like. Youth. I can't stress this enough. As incredible as Montgomery is, as incredible as as the work of middle-aged field workers like Medgar Evers down in Mississippi, and and certainly, you know, the the activism of, of churches and organizations like the NAACP and like the SCLC, to not center young people in the civil rights movement is to miss how that movement has evolved and how it continues to evolve. You don't get Black Lives Matter if you never had the Black Panthers, if you never had the hip-hop movement of the mid-80s to the early 90s. You don't get that arm of the civil rights movement, which is the civil rights movement. There are so many students who I get who tell me that what they know of an organization like the Black Panthers is that they're a terrorist organization. Oh, no, no, no. The Black Panthers 
are the outgrowth of the student nonviolent coordinating right. committee. You know, right, right, right. The sit-ins. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So before we get to before we get to all of those those branches, because they are fascinating, and I do think it would be good to take an opportunity to kind of dispel some of these stereotypes around the different some of these different organizations. I do want to take a step back though and ask you a question about the sit-in movement that does begin in Greensboro, because you are highlighting the fact that Linda Brown was such an attractive choice for the NAACP because of her inherent respectability and about how these larger civil rights organizations want to control youth. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering then what your your interpretation is on the fact that within the sit-in movement, even though it's kind of, it is its own sort of youth-led movement, these college students are sending letters and instructions to other people across the region, and then as it continues to spread, giving them very specific instructions about how they're supposed to act in these spaces. And these instructions are pretty fascinating because a lot of they include like how they're supposed to dress. The idea was that you were supposed to arrive in the to these spaces and you know your Sunday best. You were meant to look put together. You were meant to you know hold your countenance in a particular sort of way. And so, even though this is youth, this is youth led, youth organized, you know, kind of breaking away. It's direct, as you said, rather than, you know, kind of indirect. But still, they're even embracing these ideas about the importance of respectability, right? Yes. So it's, it is really fascinating because in as much as they are different from their parents or from their community leaders, from, from their activist elders in general, they are still reared up and, and hold, you know, a lot of faith that who they are as these upright next generation college and university educated mostly Christian. And, and I don't use that just as, you know, this, this general sense of belonging, genuine, deeply Christian, devoutly Christian kids. There is still very much that sense. And this, this is true also whenever you look at some of the high school students who were desegregating high schools across the South in this era, there is this faith that who they are as the upstanding members of their own community, who they plan to be as upstanding citizens of the United States who will contribute to the body politic, that that will inherently protect them somehow. Even as they, and I love that you mentioned that they are trained in how to maintain their composure. That is so tremendously important. When you look at some of the earliest activism of the sit-in students, and then after so many kids form the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee over at Shaw back in 60, these are students who are assertive, they're aggressive in their own way. That's the entirety of what direct confrontation is, but they also are insistent that you don't strike back. You use that satyagraha, king, Gandhian form of resistance to unmask your oppressor. 
right? And it also has a lot to do, too, with that idea of Christian love, that, you know, this is part of what radical love looks like is nonviolence at the end of the day. They sincerely believe in that. They since Jesus, Jesus didn't raise a hand to the people that, no. you know, tormented him at the end. And so it's a very sort of Christ-like sacrifice for, exactly. for the people, for the movement. And I think some of this, the stories that I'm aware of about the, I don't know what you would call it, trainings and things that they would put each other through in terms of, you know, trying to build up an individual's tolerance for the sorts of things, the verbal and physical abuse that they could face going into these spaces to kind of build up a level of tolerance so that when they got to these places where the sit-ins were happening, that they would be able to maintain their composure. I mean, it's, it's intense stuff. Yeah, it's hard to talk about. <laughs> yeah. It's like I I feel like like right now if you went into certain classrooms or the basements of Fisk University in particular in Nashville where you had John Lewis and Diane Nash and different folks working and engaging exactly in this breaking people down, I feel like you could go in those spaces now and get a sense of that I mean like ghosts. Like you would go in there and just feel a heaviness of just like what you had to learn in these spaces. They were in so many ways, God, just like these, these torture chambers Mm -hmm. so that you could survive what was going to be certainly done to you, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in these direct confrontations. And that's, I think that was one of the most important things for adult and elder activists was, although we certainly know and there's so much evidence of just the Edmund Pettus Bridge is is so notorious for this, where, you know, police attacked unarmed, peaceful protesters standing on the bridge, right? Mm -hmm. But going into these spaces, I just, you know, being 41 years old, having a kid of my own, just the intense fear of your kid going into a space where you know and they know you you are at least going to get a Coke thrown on you. That's the best expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The import, The importance of youth to the way that the civil rights movement, you know, moves on and continues to involve and change is, is ever present, right? This, the student nonviolent coordinating committee grows out of these still very youth centered. Um, as you mentioned, the Black Panthers are, are yet another outgrowth of that. And I think those organizations represent even kind of a, and correct me if I'm wrong, sure the expert, not me, but a, a change in philosophy too about what the goals of the movement are, correct? Yes. So when you asked about how interesting it is that these young people still adhere very much to this politics of respectability that their elders, that older people are doing. It's very middle class. It's incredibly classist. So there has been a perpetual strain of civil rights activism, again, since always. This isn't unique to the 20th century, but since always amongst 
working class people who would take up activism to really reject the idea that they had to assimilate socially or whatever. Now, that's not at all to say that any of the mantles that middle-class adults and college students and kids assumed were cynical. That that's that's another complication I think for folks to understand sometimes is that they didn't just adhere to these ideas because they thought they would protect them. That's mm-hmm. part of it. It's a huge part of it, but they also genuinely believe this is the best way to live, present oneself, behave. This is the best way to get ahead in a society. I mean, it's it's ultimately capitalist, right? Which, which is, you know, that's neither here nor there. And if it's going to be here or there, that's an entirely different conversation, right? But you've got these people from outside of the middle class and the upper echelons who have been perpetually not assimilating at all. And creating their own methods of resistance. And that's really what you see amongst young people whenever SNCC begins to dissolve. There is finally this heartbreaking moment of realization for a lot of Black activists in particular that respectability politics is never going to win the day. And that even collaborating with white allies Whatever happens based on that collaboration is going to be propelled forward by white people's interest in protecting other white people. The break, the the, the biggest break with SNCC really happens in the summer of 1964. You have hundreds of SNCC activists down in Mississippi in a project that they call Freedom Summer. Mm-hmm. Register, yes, it's there. It's this massive attempt to register adult black Mississippians to vote, mm-hmm. to, to really break Jim Crow where it lives the hardest. And it's an integrated effort. There are these white college SNCC activists down there. They're living in these integrated camps. White and black folks are coming in and out of each other's houses. Mm-hmm. It, just enrages local white Mississippians and especially the KKK. And you have the murder of two young white SNCC activists and the local black SNCC activists. Mm-hmm. And that is what breaks the hearts of a lot of black SNCC activists is the international outrage over Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney because they believed, and it's not unfairly so, that that case got the attention it did because it was two young white guys involved. So that's whenever you get Loudoun's County, Alabama, and Stokely Carmichael beginning to argue, this has to be about black power. Right. And so there are a lot of these activists who are coming out of this middle-class respectability-centered tradition. But once they start talking about Black power, then you have this joining from working-class folks who have been like, well, yeah, we've been arguing that all along, and that's what Malcolm X argued, and that's what Marcus Garvey argued. And that's whenever you get out to Oakland, and all of a sudden, the youth arm of the movement has become this far more assertive and aggressive with a small A 
movement. And, and I'm qualifying that word because aggressive gets used as a negative connotation for black activists right. a lot. Right. But they are a self-defense centered yeah. group, right? Yeah. And I think that that was that was you brought up Malcolm X. That was Malcolm X's big thing was that, you know, armed armed self-defense. So not arming oneself to go on the offensive, but arming oneself to adequately defend one's own person and their family. And I think it's American as apple pie, right? <laughs> and I, it's, it's, it's like one of those, one of those top, top three amendments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think the generational aspect of that is, Kind of seeing it as a generational conflict and a and a difference between ideas of youth is actually a really kind of enlightening way to consider. I had never thought of it that way, but I books that I read as a graduate student that I I still kind of reflect on on fondly was the biography of Ella Baker. Um, for those of you that are listening that are not aware, Ella Baker was uh, a civil rights activist and she was um, worked a lot with with Dr. King. Um, but her biography is so fascinating because it really does uncover the the kind of gender divisions that existed in the movement itself. The reason why I bring her up is because there's a, a chapter that's dedicated. She's at the meetings when Stokely Carmichael really begins to kind of speak out and suggest that there needs to be this separation and that the white allies need to be purged from the movement, that they don't need to be part of it anymore. And she had a very different idea. And I she was saddened by by that by that break, by those decisions to make that change. And I I just highlight her as an example because I think that definitely shows that generational shift. Because at this point, Ella Baker had been in been a part of the movement since what the thirties. Is that right? I mean, like she had been a part of the movement for a long time. And so she was very much part of that older generation that had, you know, a different set of philosophies that they thought, you know, would be best in terms of propelling the movement forward. And it, it really is kind of a, a generational thing, which is interesting. I had never really considered it that way. I perpetually have students who come in either to the survey classes or to, you know, the, the advanced history courses. And I'll always ask them, you know, tell me, tell me what you know about the civil rights movement. And they'll smile and they'll start to talk about Dr. King, almost always the, I have a dream speech. Sure. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll talk about Rosa Parks and that will be it. Now, our students here at UNCP are majority black and brown. Mm -hmm. I will usually have one or two students who know considerably more. They've learned more in their community. Maybe they went to a school that had stronger programming or, or teachers who had stronger backgrounds, and they'll know some some significant additional history. But most students, regardless of what demographic they know these very standard things and they know that that's not it, but that's all they've been exposed to. And I find that every year there are students who realize for the first time how powerful they are 
after we have these discussions and after we do these readings and after, oh my gosh, I mean, that's, that's the lovely thing about being, you know, a 20th century historian. You have the media, you know, as your Mm -hmm. archive, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and any any person who's come through any of my classes knows about how I love documentaries and clips and all this stuff, right? And they see these people who are roughly their age, literally moving mountains. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not only different from an educational standpoint, but you see it occur to them in real time. I can do significant altering things. And that's part of the reason that it means so much to me to center youth in the civil rights movement. And I I remember being their age in the early aughts in college and not feeling like I had a lot of power to do much of anything besides get up and go to class, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't know how my life might have been different if if I would have seen people my age centered and and being very significant players in their local local world and and beyond the way that these people were. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I don't I don't really teach the survey anymore, but when I used to, I would always tell the story of the Greensboro for also mentioning the Bennett Bells because nobody ever mentions the Bennett Bells um, in that in that story. For those of you that don't know, Bennett is um, the African-American Ladies College in Greensboro. And these women were a big part of the organization that happened. Um, They were writing letters and doing things well before the four four A&T gentlemen decided to sit down at that Woolworths counter. We know, you know, they're not part of the the big narrative. But I frequently, you know, that was something that I shared with students as well when I taught this because for the same reasons. Because it should be incredibly empowering to say, look at what people your age were able to do. I feel that in a lot of the conversations that I have with students now, their their sociology professors and things like that are arming them with a vocabulary to talk about these things. Yes. But then that's just kind of where it stops. Mm -hmm. They, They talk a lot about these things, but they don't seem to really be able to envision themselves taking the taking the next step. And I think that I agree with you completely. That's why, you know, telling these stories that really highlight youth and the, I mean, it's the youth that completely changed the movement. You know, I mean, yes, we can say, you know, Brown v. Board was a major success and all of the legal work that went into that, you know, laid an important legal precedent. But you know, as a reminder for everyone, right? Brown v. Board happens in the middle of the 50s. The Greensboro Four sit down in 1960 and ain't much changed in that that time period, right? All deliberate speed. What is what does that mean? And so day-to-day experiences hadn't been that different. And it took, you know, those young people doing what they did and getting you know, you mentioned the media, getting the media coverage, right? Yeah. Where people around the country were able to really kind of mm-hmm. see the shock, the horror, the disgusting yeah. nature of Jim Crow. And it changed a lot of things. 
I'm so glad that you said that about how important legislation is because absolutely, right? That's, that's what you continue to point back to, to say, here's how my rights continue to be violated because you're not in compliance with XXX. But the practicality on the ground, that is an ongoing struggle. And that's, that, you know, is true for every kind of civil rights movement. We are both women in academia. We have our own experiences. Mm-hmm. To continue to be recognized as citizens continues to be an uphill struggle for us that we have to fight on the ground that's different than legislative victory. I love that you said that because the work goes on. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it'll be interesting, you know, coming back to youth, it'll be interesting to see where, where the youth decide to go next. I don't know if you watch Andor or not, but all of this is right in line with Andor. (laughs) Don't, I don't, I hear people talk about it, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, here's the thing. I need to watch more TV. I watch I watch sports and that's, that's kind of it. I can't, I don't know. I need to relax, Dr. Harper. I need to do a better job of relaxing because I find myself in, in quiet moments telling myself that I need to be doing something productive. And so I just can't really, can't really bring myself to sit down and watch I, the guilt associated with sitting down and watching TV. I don't know. Clearly it's a problem. <laughs> I need I need to work through. It's a it's an it's an issue. <laughs> it's it's okay. It's if there's one thing about me that I think my students would say, it's that I probably I, I probably need to put down the screens at some point. Like I have <laughs> I, I have a TikTok analogy or a Star Wars analogy for virtually everything, and it's. It's just, I, I feel sometimes like, wow, that I just spend way too much brain fodder on this. <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm the complete opposite. My, um, my, my lack of pop culture knowledge is kind of my shtick. Yeah. You know, I think at some point though, I am going to like age out of where that's cute and funny. You know, like right now I'm still kind of like, oh, it's ironic because I should know about pop culture and I don't. But, you know, decade or two on down the road, it's going to I'm just going to be an old curmudgeon. (laughs) Like that's that's how people it's not going to be cute and ironic anymore. It's just going to be. Wow. Oh, well. Well, Dr. Harper. This has been wonderful. Oh, and I want to thank you so very much for your time. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Yeah. Well, see you later. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us next time when we will discuss Reconstruction. Speak with you soon.